0: Welcome, everybody, to Kibbe on Liberty. This is a cool episode because I'm going to talk about two of my favorite subjects, beer and freedom. As watchers of this show know, those two things go together intimately. You can't do one without the other, I would argue. And we have two special guests today, uh, Ted from Goodwood Brewing and Oliver from Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, Welcome, guys. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, great to be here.
0: Um Ted if you would uh start let me let me just just introduce yourself and tell us who you are and tell us a little bit about Goodwood Brewing.
1: Well Ted Mitzloff, uh we bought the company in 2005 small production brewery we grew it uh when it was easy when uh craft beer was kind of exploding we uh I took it over as managing partner in 2013 and uh we were in four states at the time. We grew it to 16 states uh, pre-COVID, and uh, added a couple locations for food service. So things were things were good, and we added bourbon a couple of years ago. Then uh, our governor decided uh, he'd shut us down—not once, but twice—and uh, that was uh, it was a different different year.
0: And somehow and you. can... And somehow you connected with Oliver with Pacific Legal Foundation um, and you guys are suing the governor, as I understand it, and we'll get into that. But but Oliver, tell us about yourself and just so people have some context, uh, a little bit about Pacific Legal Foundation.
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Oliver Dunford, I've been at uh, Pacific Legal Foundation for about four years now. We're a uh, libertarian-leaning law firm. Uh, we Our history has been... Uh, at the beginning was was mainly property rights, uh, and that was 1973. Since then, we've expanded. Uh, we do free speech, economic liberty, um, and most recently, we started working on separation of powers cases, uh, which applies here because uh, the governor in Kentucky has decided uh, to take on all powers of government, and uh, that, that was uh, that was our interest in the case.
0: You know, I was uh, I was personally shocked watching the original. Lockdowns roll out, particularly in in blue states. Uh, Kentucky's not really a blue state, but you have a very blue governor. And and I was wondering from day one, how on earth can they do this? There didn't seem to be any constitutional limits to their power, um, and that's obviously what this case is all about: that that this governor has exceeded his constitutional powers and has ignored the legislature as well.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, many states, including Kentucky, have emergency powers laws which allow the governor uh, certain powers when an emergency hits.'ll uh, you know they vary from state to state. Um, California, for example, has a, a very, not surprisingly, gives lots of powers to their governor during times of emergency. Kentucky's was fairly broad uh, until just recently. The General Assembly changed the law in January and limited the governor's powers and most relevant for our case, uh, said that emergency orders lapsed automatically after 30 days, unless he got an extension with the general assembly. Uh, But after 30 days, he continued to enforce his orders and and said that, no, I have uh, all kinds of inherent power in the executive uh, office to continue uh, the emergency itself, to continue the state of emergency and to continue issuing orders for as long as I determine is necessary.
0: And this, uh, Ted, has been devastating to your business, the the start and stop and start and stop. And, and I was sort of slogging through some of the the rules on the, the governor's website. And I don't, I don't know how any restaurant or brewery can even comply with this stuff.
1: No, it, it never made any sense. Uh, not only was it difficult for, for us, but, uh, uh, you know, all of our clients are bars and restaurants, and we just watched one after another fail. Uh, Kentucky's failure rate is somewhere between 25 and 30%. There. Nationally, it's around 17%. The uh, laws made, uh, they, they were so nonsensical. I'm a, a chemical engineer. Uh, prior to uh, my life as a, 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 in the brewery world, I owned a chemical company where we did cleaning and sanitation of food processing plants. So I know a little bit about microbes and how they grow and how you kill them. Um, the rules that were put in place where you had to sit outside in a tent inside, but you couldn't sit inside a building, you know, which just, I mean, that that's crazy. Then uh, once they did open up the restaurants, it was a very limited capacity. You couldn't sit at a bar, but you could sit at a bar at a table. So it, it, they put little... Plexiglass sheets up uh, in between booths, and uh, uh, that made uh, you know as if the the virus uh, couldn't go around the around the plastic bin. Anyone that would could light up, a, if that were the case, you'd be able to smoke uh, in one booth and not another booth. And, and it, but obviously, it, uh, you know, it's going to transfer. So none of these none of these rules made any sense. They were difficult to follow, di- almost impossible to enforce. Uh, and the the enforcement was very selective so uh, it, it just it, it was a cluster from the word go uh, it, 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 and we had a, a, a one of our locations had a very favorable very friendly uh, health inspector and when she learned that there was a fifty percent capacity, she came in pulled the capacity uh, plaque off of our wall and put up a new one that had double capacity <laughs> Basically, the health inspector is telling us um, the governor was crazy.
0: Yeah. You know, there's uh, there's now data to support that argument. And it never really made sense in the first place from my perspective because I always felt like uh, local knowledge and your ability as a restaurateur or a proprietor to protect your employees and your customers probably was more robust than some some governor. And I won't pick on the governor of Kentucky per se, but you know, a lot of governors decided these things from the top down about things that they knew, industries and businesses, they knew nothing about in the first place. So you end up with this, this uh, thing that even, I think it was the Washington Post this week called COVID safety theater, where we sort of pretend to be cautious about things, but we're doing things that don't really matter at all um, just to make uh, bureaucrats feel better about themselves.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate, uh, particularly when you take into account the states that did open early, and they were called Neanderthals and, and what have you, and their, their mortality rates were no different than any other state. So uh, it really made no sense. In Kentucky were bordered by Indiana and Tennessee. Both states were open, yet Kentucky was, was closed or relatively closed. Our patrons were driving across the Ohio River, uh, which is, uh, you know, Louisville borders the Ohio, driving over to Southern Indiana, drinking, eating, having fun, and then coming back to, to Kentucky. So it just that uh, they were worthless, other than, you know, stifling the the, the hospitality industry. Which yeah, did a nice job.
0: So so Goodwood Brewing makes uh, both uh, beer, and your your sort your specialty is is finishing an aging beer in uh, Kentucky uh, barrels, white oak barrels, and you've gotten into the distilling business. Tell me a little bit about the the brewing side of the business versus the hospitality restaurant side of the business. What's the balance there?
1: Well, uh, pre-COVID, we were probably uh, two thirds, uh, hospitality on the on the revenue. But let me back up. Initially, we were 100% beer distribution. That's all we did, production and distribution. Uh, we opened a small tap room in Louisville uh, with food service, and I saw the revenues uh, just were tremendous. So we then opened uh, a, a full restaurant in Frankfort, Kentucky, with a small brewery, and uh, you know that's a, about a three million dollar a year location for us so quickly i realized uh, just how important that was not only from a revenue standpoint but also from a branding standpoint we get a ton of tourists through there so uh, you know they they see the products uh, they have a good experience in our restaurants and then they're more inclined to purchase it when they're out or when they go back to their own state
0: so so what was uh, for your business what was more uh, devastating the beer side of the business or the restaurant side
1: Say equally, uh, because uh, you know the, the restaurants clearly. I mean, they were basically zero percent capacity, Then there was limited capacity uh, once we were open. So, so uh, you know, they they did very little. We lost ninety five percent. We went from uh, about eighty employees to five. Uh, but on the on the even the beer production, our clients were bars and restaurants. Fifty percent of our sales uh, on, on the production side. So so that was devastating to our beer distribution as well. Uh, we sold a little bit through, uh, you know, carry out. We sold uh, a small amount, uh, you know, still through distri- regular distribution. But because our distributors were so uh, negatively affected, they didn't want to take on any new products either. They wanted to deplete their inventories. So uh, it it was it was chaos. And so if they ran out of Goodwood's Logger uh, when when they would get an order, they would say, well, we don't have any Goodwood Logger, but we can get you you know, company X is longer instead.
0: So that's, that's sort of the way it went. So we've, uh, at for the people we've talked to a number of businesses that have sort of gone through what you've gone through and, and so many of them are being devastated, but not everybody wants to speak up for fear of sort of, uh, political or regulatory retaliation. What was, what was the tipping point for you that said, I, I got to speak up because this isn't just about me anymore. This is about this is about an industry I love.
1: That's a great question. Um when Oliver first approached us, Oliver would know the number better than I would, but there were probably twenty people that were rah, rah, let's do this. And then when when he said, Okay, we, we're gonna step up, we're gonna do it, there were three of us that, that stepped forward and did it. I talked to a lot of big restaurant owners, uh big big restaurant chains that are either headquartered in louisville or headquartered in lexington uh, i know the owners well they were behind us 120 percent they were they they were petrified to put their head on the chopping block for re- for the fear of repercussions and i will tell you uh you know we've had several um, I, i'm going to be audited uh, by the state that's fine uh, we also uh, i was on a on a statewide ad uh, promoting vaccinations uh, they took me off the ad they scrubbed from the ad, which is you know no big deal, but just just very petty, uh, and uh, you know we we did get a, a little bit of flack. Uh, we got a lot of flack initially from the the keyboard cowboys when we first came out that we were suing uh, Bashir, uh, but uh, the, when it really started to gain momentum, people realized uh, what we were about in our suit. The fact that Oliver uh, was was you know supporting the Constitution of Kentucky, uh, that it really wasn't about whether you have a D or an R next to your name, it's about uh, following the state constitution, following the law. Uh, uh, I think everybody pretty much uh, came around.
0: And and how did your customers respond? Did, did you get any blowback from people that love your beer and maybe not your willingness to speak up?
1: We did. Uh, did certainly I had a couple uh, couple doozy emails come through However, our revenues and both are uh, uh, all three of our restaurants doubled uh, shortly after this came out. So uh, more people spoke with their wallets than they did with their keyboard. <laughs> oh,
0: that, that's that's encouraging to hear. And maybe you'll you'll give some other folks the courage to speak up. Uh, Oliver, why don't we why don't we dig into the case a little bit and and give people a history of of how the governor has sort of trampled the Constitution in Kentucky and and ignored the legislature? Yeah,
2: sure. Uh, So last year in March, uh, when everything was starting up, uh, the governor declared a state of emergency. And in that order, he specified that he was doing so pursuant to the authorities granted him in Chapter 39A of the statutes. Didn't mention the Constitution, just said this is, I'm doing this pursuant to my statutory authority as the year went on, he started adding to that and saying uh, in in later orders that he was doing it pursuant to the statutory authority and under the Constitution. Um, And that went on for, you know, March through January of last year. Uh, the The one wrinkle in Kentucky, which is similar to other states, is that the legislature in Kentucky is in session only for a short period of time every year. So last year they were out of session I think in April at some point and so from April through the end of the year the governor was allowed um, to, to issue the orders and, and didn't get any pushback except of course there were a number of lawsuits but there was no pushback from the legislature uh, and, and again depending on, on how broadly you read the, the statutes uh, the governor was exercising authority given to him he was allowed to declare a state of emergency he was allowed to uh, issue executive orders uh, other agencies in the executive branch were allowed to issue emergency regulations. So at, from a, at a high level, what the governor did was, was appropriate. Uh, there were some questions about specific orders and, and there were some challenges based on First Amendment. But um, from our perspective, that wasn't our concern, whether or not uh, an individual order was a, an appropriate balance. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because in January, when the General Assembly uh, reconvened for the year, it adopted a series of laws, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of which said uh, executive orders lapse after 30 days. It also said that emergency regulations lapse after 30 days. And another important provision said that if a, uh, an executive order expires by, by under the terms of the law, then the governor cannot reissue that order, uh, and nor can he continue to execute the emergency authorities under uh, Chapter 39A and so that law became effective February 2nd. We sued on March 8th, which is a little more than 30 days after uh, all the orders expired, Uh, and we said that the governor has no more authority to enforce these orders, and we asked the the court for an injunction to prevent the governor from enforcing them against uh, Ted and the other restaurants, Uh, and and the Scott Circuit Court uh, issued the order.
0: So uh, you may be aware more than I am, but I believe there's a number of other states that are sort of pursuing legislatures pursuing these same sorts of limits on this this blank check that governors have used during COVID.
2: Yeah, there are a number of uh, a number of states that are doing so, and uh, I should mention that um, one of the laws that was adopted in Kentucky, and in other states, uh, Missouri, for example. Uh, was based on model legislation that uh, Pacific Legal Foundation's policy shop drafted, uh, and that again, the main provisions of those are um, the, setting a time limit on the governor's authority to issue orders, and then preventing the governor from uh, getting around that uh, expiration date by simply reissuing uh, the orders. I think I think we're up to something like ten states now have have at least introduced legislation like that, and and uh, I don't know, six or so have have, uh, have adopted it.
0: You know, it strikes me um, that maybe none of us were aware of this amazingly large loophole in in the constitutional limits on the executive um, until COVID, where they just seemed to keep, uh, keep pushing the limit to see how far they could go. And there didn't seem to be any way to stop them, no matter how um, serious or unserious their proposals were.
2: Yeah, and I, I think that the two reasons in, in this case. One is that um, for the last uh, not quite hundred years, uh, but courts have just given uh, vast deference to uh, executive agencies um, and to the government in general. And the, the rule when an when when issue doesn't involve, say, racial discrimination, in which case the courts will take a a close look. Uh, If it's it's just a run-of-the-mill so-called like a land use regulation or uh, uh, alcohol regulations, uh, courts will defer to the government. And and in fact, the judges will even look for a reason to support uh, the government's actions. Uh, It's called the rational basis test. And so if the court can come up with any reason that would justify the government's regulations, it will uphold it. So that's kind of the, the overall um, jurisprudence uh, stat, status where we are now, unfortunately. Uh, you know, Obviously, one of, one of the things Pacific Legal Foundation wants to do is to get that uh, scrutiny increased, so judges take a closer look at these kinds of things. Um, but the second reason, I think, in this case is because uh, it, it was a pandemic. It, it, there, there were a lot of things happening quickly. We didn't know exactly what was going on, and in those kinds of uh, cases, the judges are especially reluctant to second-guess the executive.
0: Yeah, I mean, early on, it seems like a, a, a radical level of uncertainty would, would excuse certain things. But as as time went on and, and data showed, um, you may both be aware that the the data in New York, um, I think going back to March or April of last year, actually explicitly sort of contradicted the, the Cuomo administration's policy showing that you had a higher infection rate and a higher hospitalization rate of people that were sheltering in place as opposed to people that were out and about and that that data existed fairly early on and and yet these that you know particularly focusing on restaurants and 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 gatherings those sorts of, of rules persisted long after the data suggested that it, it didn't work anyway
1: yeah that's even, right even more so go ahead Dan. yeah even even more so with schools I mean, they closed schools and children were clearly not uh, the, the carriers or the risk. Um, I believe there was one death in the U.S. of a, of a child who, was, who didn't have pre-existing conditions. And it, it just it, it was crazy the way they they went after that.
0: Yeah. And there's, there's, there's all sorts of, uh, um, I believe the technical term is deaths of despair. And you've seen some horrible data. Uh, particularly with young people and attempted suicide and that sort of thing. And I, as a, as a beer geek who very much finds, I I enjoy beer culture and I enjoy, I enjoy the, the sort of community gatherings that happen uh, around local breweries and, and that, that industry has been devastated, but on the consumer side, you don't, you don't have that, that human connection. Um, I assume Goodwood was, was sort of part of that, that, community gathering culture that makes uh, local beer special?
1: Very much so. Uh, that's one of the things, uh, My really my favorite thing about operating this company is being able to walk out in the tap room at any given time and uh, mix with, with the patrons and meet people from all over the country that uh, that happen to be passing through Kentucky, um, meet locals. You, you really do uh, find a, a complete uh, a diversity of, of thought and uh, it's something that I, I, I love and cherish, and, and frankly, uh, that, that was robbed. And, and you're right. I mean, I know several uh, business owners that uh, were crushed through this that committed suicide. Uh, I know, obviously, children, uh, I know that the suicide rates were way up, uh, drug abuse was way up, uh, physical abuse was way up. The, the, just uh, they never talk about the uh, unintended consequences. Uh, all they want to talk about are the positivity rates and the deaths.
0: Yeah, I was I was reading an industry report for the beer industry showing the the shifts that people had to make, and you you sort of represent that same sort of shift in your business model. But like it was a perfect storm where particularly for the small guys that were pouring to local customers and weren't even in the canning business. And then there was an aluminum shortage, so crawlers and and cans were hard to come by, and the Still shift, are. yeah, and the the shift from people uh, drinking as a community gathering to sitting on their couch with a six pack. I mean, all of it, all of it is just obviously bad. Um, so let l- let me pivot because so so what is the the status of the case now? And when will you know? I'll, I'll, I'll direct this at you, Oliver. But both both of you guys feel free to chime in on this. Like, when are you going to get a decision?
2: Well, we're not sure. We, as I mentioned earlier, we did get a, uh, a an injunction from the trial court, uh, preventing the governor from enforcing the orders, just against uh, just against Ted and, and our clients, the other clients, uh, not statewide, which the governor tried to make a big deal out of. And so it's just our clients. It was a narrow injunction. Uh, the governor immediately moved for emergency relief at the court of appeals, and so that order was stayed, which means paused. So we, uh, so Ted and the other clients were free for a, a whole week um, recently, and then the Kentucky Supreme Court took the case up, and we had oral arguments last week. Um, we don't know when; maybe six weeks, we'll get an opinion. Um, what the governor, after after the Supreme Court announced when oral arguments would take place, which was June 10th. Uh, a few days later, the governor announced uh, that all of the restrictions would be lifted on June 11th. And so uh, at the oral argument, the governor's lawyer said, there's really no reason to, to keep uh, this injunction in place anymore, you should just vacate it. Uh, and we said, no, we, You know, the governor maintains he still has these powers. We think this needs to stay in place because he could come back uh, on June 12th and say, no, we need to put these orders back in if cases spike again in the fall, he could do it again. So, um, so we're waiting right now. Currently, uh, uh, you know, Ted is now freed. The governor has has graciously allowed uh, the restaurants to reopen, but but he has not uh, he has not relinquished his powers.
0: Do Do you feel blessed, Ted, that the governor is is giving you uh, at least partial rights to run your business?
1: Oh yeah, tremendously. Uh, what What was I found most distasteful was. Uh, more than once, his attorney uh, was arguing against uh, what, something that, that Oliver put in our case, which I believe was spot on, was the fact that a lot of these uh, powers that he inflicted on us and the restrictions are were irreversible. And she kept saying that it was not irreversible. I'd like her to tell, tell that to the uh, business owner that lost his business, lost his house, uh, to the uh, folks that committed suicide because they couldn't been handleable locked out. Uh, that seems pretty irreversible
0: to me. Yeah, um, I, I, unfortunately, I think I know the answer to this. Um, Oliver is, uh, is there any remedy legally, if you win for people that were either damaged or destroyed by these, the arbitrary nature of these, these orders?
2: No, governors can make mistakes and there is, uh, there's no remedy outside of a, uh, you know, a narrow, uh, uh, allowance for if they violate your civil rights. But in this case, as broadly applicable, it's hard to it's hard to argue that the uh, the restaurants uh, or or our clients were denied civil rights that were you know that anyone else uh, was allowed to uh, exercise. So, but as general rule, no, you can't recover damages from the government. Government.
0: I I can't help but notice, and maybe your case had something to do with the sudden change of heart from the governor's office. Do you, do you feel like the case itself forced? the governor to retreat from his more aggressive position?
2: I think so. He, he had, uh, there were a number of lawsuits last year, as I mentioned. Uh, those um, were ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, I, I think the, the benefit of ours was, again, we didn't necessarily challenge the substance of the orders. We didn't say that his orders were a bad idea. We didn't say that the new legislation was a good idea. We simply said, here's what the law says, and the governor has to follow it. Um, and uh, the numbers have gotten better, there's no question about it, but some of his announcements seem to tie him up with uh, what happened in our case. And so I, I think we did speed things along, at least at least I hope we did.
0: Yeah. Um, Ted, I have to ask, you've, you've stuck your neck out and you've, you've sort of taken a beating under these orders. Um, the lockdowns are over. Why are you persisting?
1: Well, sometimes uh, to you know being being right and taking a stand is not easy, and uh, I'm very grateful that Oliver took our case. Uh, I, uh, you know, the last thing I want to do is pick a fight with my governor, uh, but uh, sometimes you you you've got to do what's right, and you've got to uh, I, I believe firmly in the Constitution. My grandfather died defending it in World War II, and uh, I intend to continue his legacy.
0: Um, does this case, if you are successful here, will this case have implications for other states? Is it? a—I know it's not an explicit precedent, but does it? Does, does 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 something happen if you guys win?
2: Yeah, as you said, it's not going to be binding on any other states, but um, but I think courts around the country pay attention to what other courts do, uh, and in they, um, you know, they for example, if California does something, it seems to it seems to have an effect. So I, I think. Uh, I think a win here would would tell the rest of the country that uh, that it's possible to uh, respond to an emergency uh, without simply relying on one person.
0: And and perhaps the point is that now now that the governors have discovered this loophole, it strikes me that they are likely to jump on the next opportunity to use it to expand their power. So this this is really about. The next emergency that we don't even know about, right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. The uh, the claims of necessity are always raised, um, and they and they can justify just about anything. Um, and and I think uh, I think Governor Newsom in California just declared a state of emergency because of uh, forest fires or maybe it was extreme heat, something, uh, which again may be a legitimate uh, um, a declaration there. But but this, the the precedent certainly been set over the last year that the that the governors will push the envelope. Uh, one thing that the governor's lawyers kept arguing is that uh, Kentucky needed a unified uh, statewide policy but as Ted mentioned uh, Indiana and Tennessee were open uh, and Governor Bashir didn't lock down the borders in Kentucky so uh, it, it's, it's an arbitrary uh, in some respects it's an arbitrary idea that you need to have a, a statewide response and and Matt as you said at the beginning you um, individuals and businesses have their own uh, responsibilities and and have every incentive uh, to take care of themselves and their customers.
0: You know, we saw that same dynamic uh, with hospitals, and there were statewide responses to managing emergency flow um, for COVID patients into hospitals, and it treated rural hospitals and city center hospitals and specialty hospitals, and and every single hospital has a different Community that they serve, and different specialties, and different local knowledge, and it, 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 it turned out disastrously um, for patients and and hospitals across the country because one size fits all just doesn't make any sense. And that that used to be common sense, but this this centralized approach to thing, to things, um, it didn't make sense to me even in the early days when we didn't know anything about what was happening because. Um, you know, my perspective as an economist is like the whole point of, of decentralized local knowledge is your ability to figure out things, particularly when you don't know what's going on. And and one person can make a horrible mistake. And if they're in charge of everything, you're really screwed. But if one person at the local level makes a mistake, other people can sort of step in and, and help fix that. And that was sort of my my liberty instinct going into this. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, it turns out that that's that's exactly the framework we should have followed instead of the Kentucky Governor Bashir framework.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and uh, one thing that happened later on, you know, again, a pause at the beginning. OK, I think I think everyone thought that was reasonable. Uh, but it, it got to the point where uh, we were afraid to take any risks. And, and as, as both you and Ted have mentioned, the, uh, the unintended consequences, the harms that were caused by the lockdowns themselves were often ignored. Uh, to the point where when the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine came out and there were some, uh, you know, one in a million cases of blood clots, uh, suddenly it became too much of a risk to take the vaccine, even though the vaccine was obviously better than getting COVID itself. Uh, and so it just got it just got taken to an extreme. And and, and, and yeah, people people just forgot about common sense in the last year.
0: Um, let me let me pivot to something um, more uplifting and ted I, you mentioned that you're a chemical engineer by training uh, but you got into the beer business and and i mentioned earlier on that i that I, I love to talk about beer and freedom and i i view particularly the American craft beer industry as a beautiful metaphor for the things that can happen when people are free to experiment and create and start businesses and it's it's, it's kind of a metaphor for entrepreneurship and one of the things I noticed about about your brewery is that you're doing something that it's not uncommon anymore in the craft beer industry, but I think you've, you're taking it a little bit further. Is is finishing and aging a lot of your beers in barrels? Um, where did that come from? And that has to cost more, right? Like, doesn't that under, undermine the bottom line?
1: It it costs more, um, but uh, you know, hopefully you can make it up. Uh, with, with resale at a higher point, but we live in Bourbon Mecca. Uh, I mean, I am literally blocks from Angels Envy, Rabbit Hole, Copper and Kings, Old Forester, Peerless. Uh, I mean, you know, they're they're all uh, uh, within a, a mile radius. Evan Williams. So access to barrels for us is easy. We want freshly dumped, uh, good premium bourbon barrels. Uh, then uh, there's an a- there was an aftermarket. It still is for furniture big big aftermarket selling to either furniture makers or back to uh cooperage companies that would then uh, break them apart send them to scotland and they they reassemble them and make scotch but put scotch in them but uh you know i grew up a bourbon guy i was a bourbon guy before i was a beer guy and uh, uh decided that you know it'd be fun to start experimenting with bourbon finished in beer barrels and uh and that that sort of created a life of its own. We did, uh, did uh, a bourbon barrel stout and a brandy barrel honey ale variant uh, from our beers, uh, we, where we finished bourbon uh, in those barrels, and we actually won gold uh, in San Francisco in the San Francisco Spirits Competition with our our bourbon uh, in uh, in our brandy barrels, and that was our third effort uh, at, at a bourbon. So uh, I think we've got something pretty good, and it, it's growing quickly and. Uh, I intend to uh to break ground on a, a distillery uh in the not too terribly distant future.
0: In uh, Louisville or or it'll be, in
1: Kentu- it'll be in Kentucky. But I'm um, still negotiating price on the land so I don't want to let yeah. them know where, where, where we're going.
0: Yeah, we won't let that secret out. But you have, <laughs> you, have you have three pubs now and you're in Lexington and Ardstown?
1: Lexington and Frankfort uh in Louisville, Good. getting ready to open Indianapolis in 2 weeks. Uh Unfortunately, that was a brew pub that went out of business, and uh, then we're uh, we signed a, a lease for a new uh, brew pub in Owensboro today.
0: Nice. So you 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 have uh, sort of a uh, it's a combination of entrepreneurship and artistry where you're you you just love what you do.
1: We love what we do, and, and you know we, we we've got a great team, and uh, uh, as long as the governor doesn't shut us down, we're going to keep going forward.
0: Uh, so you, but you're, you're, you're sort of, uh, hedging your bets by moving to the freer state of Indianapolis.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe, uh, we, we could annex Louisville and have it join Indiana, like they're trying to do in, uh, in Oregon with, uh, with Idaho.
0: Yeah. So how do, how do uh, if people want to check you out, how do they find your beer? I mean, I know you distribute as well, but, uh, how
1: do, how do people try Goodwood beer? Well, uh, obviously, our tap rooms, we're uh, in the 16 states uh, or uh, 10 post-COVID that were distributed. Uh, You know, we're in most big chain stores, Kroger's, uh, Total Wines, those those types, uh, a lot of independent stores. But uh, with legislation that we got through uh, last year, you can now do beer order. Uh, So they can actually go to our website, goodwood.beer, and place an order for any of our beers or our bourbon.
0: And are, are the pubs and restaurants at 100% now? They're fully open again.
1: They are, but now, of course, everybody's fighting the uh, labor shortage. Uh, yeah. So there's there's another government uh, mandate and that, that's kind of gone awry. So uh, hopefully by September, we our governor hasn't taken his foot off that. So uh, it is very difficult right now to to fully staff your your bar or restaurant.
0: It's it's more lucrative to not work. Still,
1: it is, it is difficult to compete when when the, the governor's paying somebody more to stay at home than than we than we can pay them uh, unless somebody wants to pay, you know, twenty dollars a six pack uh, to uh, to come to work.
0: I've
1: I've noticed this
0: uh, every restaurant that I've gone to. I live in Washington D.C. and our rules may in fact be more oppressive than anything that Governor Bashir has done. Uh, but I. I tip aggressively because I really appreciate people that want to work right now because I understand how liberative it is not to work. Yes, uh, uh,
1: and it's greatly appreciated.
0: Yeah, Oliver, um, tell us about, I mean, you're, you're almost guaranteeing a win is what I'm hearing, you're, you're, <laughs> you you never lose, right? That's right, we never lose. Uh, no,
2: you know, we hope so. We, we you know, we tend to take cases where um, the odds are kind of long uh, just because our goal is to change precedent and, uh, and to challenge some of the uh, aggressive uh, overreach by govern- government. Um, Ted just mentioned that they had new legislation to allow them to sell uh, beer online. One of the other things that the Governor Bashir uh, loosened is that bars were now allowed to sell uh, beer, alcohol to go, um, which previously had been restricted for who knows what reason. Um, so we tend to think uh, that, you know, we're challenging entrenched uh, uh, jurisprudence. And so uh, this case uh, presents a nice issue because it's it's really clean, we think. Uh, again, we didn't get into the substance. We weren't telling Governor Bashir he was he was wrong that he was making uh, improper orders. We just said your your authority has now run out. You need to follow the law just like everybody else. Um, so we're, we're hopeful that the argument is is clean and uh, and and uh, doesn't doesn't take any uh, creative writing or uh, mental gymnastics by the court. Uh, but again, the governor's excuse me governor's decision to uh, lift the restrictions. Ah, uh, the day after oral argument certainly complicates it. it. it It can give the court an out if it wants it. Um, I, I don't think it should. I think our case remains a live case, and the issues uh, remain important. Uh, and so I think the court should issue a ruling, but um,
0: but but you never know. You never know. Um, so i'm I'm a big fan of Pacific Legal. Uh, tell everybody how they can check out not just your cases, but all the work that Pacific Legal Foundation does.
2: Yeah, please uh, go to PacificLegal.org. Um, check out. We have a. Uh, we're waiting for a case actually, which will be released next week from the United States Supreme Court that was argued earlier this year. So um, we keep uh, we keep working and and trying to get these cases up to the the high courts in the state and the and the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: Cool. Um, so so Ted, I'm going to look you up next time I'm in Bourbon Country because my wife and I do another talk. Not only am I a beer geek, but I'm a bourbon geek, and we do a talk called Whiskey is Freedom. So I, I feel like we're going to have to do some field re- research at your at your pub.
1: I would love to host you and your wife. That'd be great. <laughs> Thank you both for your time, and hopefully,
0: hopefully the good guys win on this one. Thanks so much for having us.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. You Happy too. Father's Day.